Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience, a very special episode today, Dr. Matthew Lamb. Assistant Professor of Epidemiology at Columbia University Medical Center. This guy is one of the leading experts in the incidence, distribution, and control of infectious diseases. I should add, the possible control of infectious diseases. He's here to talk to us about coronavirus, to debunk myths, provide us with facts, and help us distill and schoolhouse rock down what is really happening so we can all make a little sense of the madness and maybe take steps together to flatten the curve and make this suck a whole lot less for a whole lot of people. Enjoy the show. And wash your hands. Epidemiology. Seven syllables that I still don't understand as a 45-year-old man who's been through the ringer in medicine. Dr. Lamb, help me understand what this word really means. I'm sure. Uh, I think... um... Part of the reason for the difficulty in this is there's kind of really two fields in epidemiology um, that are related but a little different. Um, The first one really has to do with this idea of an epidemic, you know, which we're experiencing a big one right now, um, which is kind of modeling how disease moves or uh, evaluating how disease moves throughout a population. Um, So that's kind of one part of epidemiology which is just to understand you know, why disease moves in a population, why some individuals get a certain disease and others don't get it, you know, why some people are more likely uh, to get things uh, than others and so on. Kind of a second related field of epidemiology really focuses on more of a philosophical question. How can we identify a specific cause of a disease uh, in a population? And so these are kind of the two things that epidemiology brings together. How do we identify how disease moves in a population and how do we understand what causes it? So it's like archaeology meets anthropology meets sociology meets biology. I think with a bit of a philosophy, uh, at least in terms of theory of logic uh, thrown in, I think that's fair. Yeah. That is the most ologies I could possibly <laughs> put together in a sentence. Okay, that sounds good. So Lewis Black did a special a couple of years ago. I think it was called Red, White and Screwed during the Bush administration when they had the terror codes. And he said there should really only be three terror codes. Jesus Christ, God damn it, and fuck me. So with that in context, we're joking now about quarantine and chill versus quarantine and panic, but there's so much information we just don't know. And I've been around the block to know which news outlets to actually listen to that are not going to spin things out there. I'm sure you are doing everything that is perfectly adequate to your trade and profession to know where the right information is out there. But as an epidemiologist, where do you stand on the 
I guess, the wizardry of awe that this is from a scientific perspective with the pragmatism of what do we actually do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so, um, you know, from an epidemiologist's perspective, um, what we really are focusing on is, you know, how contagious this illness is um, and also, you know, what steps do we have to take to control this uh, given that uh, for whatever reasons, uh, you know, certain of our countries um, were unable to uh, kind of mitigate in a in a cheaper manner, uh, mitigate this before it kind of became widespread. Um, so, you know, kind of from our perspective, um, what we're really focusing on understanding is how do we reduce the number of new infections, you know, tomorrow versus today? Um, and while also uh, realizing that there might come a point in time when, you know, reducing the number of infections might not be the primary goal. Um, and this is, you know, there are people, we get infected with things all the time. You know, the common cold is an infection, for example. Um, this is something that we're concerned about because it seems to be uh, pretty nasty for a subset of the population. Uh, so really, in terms of the worry meter uh, or the terror meter, um, really, uh, the level is high precisely because we have an interest in protecting uh, kind of these individuals who have been fairly clearly defined by the epidemiology as vulnerable. Not everybody that's going to have like a really bad, uh, you know, a bad situation if uh, they, you know, become, uh, if they get this infection. Um, But we're trying to protect the individuals um, who are, who seem to be pretty susceptible to really bad outcomes. I'm living in whatever nerd version of epidemiology I can appreciate, having worked in in advocacy for so long. I'm hearing stories about how the disproportionate number of people that were older in China is now because they're a very heterogeneous society, homogeneous society out there. And now here in the U.S., it's like 60 percent or over 60 years old. And we don't know why that is. But my question to you, which no one seems to answer, and there's probably not an answer for this, is what minimum percentage of the country from a bell curve perspective will actually flatten the curve enough for us to not obliterate the economy and society while still knowing that a lot of people are just really stupid? Okay. So let's see how I can answer this question. Um, You know, the best guess from the people who spent a lot of time, you know, estimating this, what we start with is, you know, if I'm an average infected person, um, how many people am I going to infect before, you know, I'm no longer infectious before I recover? Um, We think right now the best guess of that number is somewhere around maybe two and a half, um, at least in the United States. So every infected person um, is going to infect about two and a half other people if we don't do any kind of control measures. Um, When we talk about flattening the curve, really what we're trying to do is we're going to try to get that number as close to one as possible. Um, Flattening the curve means that we're going to try to reduce uh, the severity in which this infection spreads by making that one infected person maybe only infect one and a half people on average or 1.1 people on average. Um, so, uh, So that's kind of all of these control measures that are being rolled out are to try to get um, this number, uh, you know, from two and a half as close to one as possible. Um, the really the ways that you can do that are you can reduce the likelihood if you come into contact with an infected person that um, the infection is going to be transmitted. That's why we're you know harping on everyone to wash their hands as much as possible because that's the single best thing that you can do. Um, and that's also why we're saying well maybe you should see fewer people right now because the fewer people you see, the fewer infected susceptible people are going to come in. Is it because we just know it's going to hit a specific percentage of the population 
in general, and it's to make it the least worst scenario so we don't like destroy the health system. So um, when we talk about, um, you know, there's a few concerns going on, um, and I can kind of explain at least my understanding of them a little bit. Um, when there's a concern about destroying the health system, it really has to do with how high the, the peak's going to be in terms of when the most people are going to need medical care. Um, and so in New York State, in New York City in particular, for example, there's this big worry that um, if we don't do enough to kind of reduce the number of infections per day, we're not going to be able to have beds, hospital beds or oxygen equipment for the subset of the population that is infected and becomes uh, ill and in need of medical treatment. Um, so in that situation, because we don't know how many people are infected, because we haven't done a good job of surveillance on this, we have an estimate on how many people are getting hospitalized every day. What the policies in New York State are trying to do is just to reduce the number of people who are being hospitalized on a given day so that we can adequately take care of them. Um, the best way to do that is to spread out the infections over a longer period of time. Right. And the outcomes are always going to be skewed based on so many different variables that we do and don't have control over. Obviously, more people are going to do better if they have access to immediate acute care versus those who don't. I mean, I think, yeah, so I'm not a medical doctor, uh, so I'm going to kind of punt a little bit on this. But um, okay. yeah, so I think, you know, my sense is that based on all of the re research that's been done in uh, the places where the epidemic is a little bit ahead of us, so China, um, South Korea, uh, parts of Italy, for example, you know, it's roughly of the cases that are identified. And this, again, is a subset of the cases that we think are out there. You know, the best guess is that we're probably like the case, the number of cases that we see reported, it's probably 10%, maybe plus or minus a whole bunch of error of the true number of people who have this illness. And that's really because for the average person, this is not going to be um, you know, this is not going to be an illness that has severe symptoms. And so it's not kind of the prognosis from a patient perspective. Um, it's a little hard to assess because the individuals that we're aware of right now tend to be the people who have, who are sicker because it's really hard to identify without, you know, population-based surveillance, um, what an average case of this looks like, because we're only really detecting the more severe versions of this. Right. I'm looking at a heat map of the country as of today on CNN's website. And is it is it just does it just make sense that there's more diagnoses in major cities where there are more people or is there something else that I'm missing? No, it's not rocket science. So like uh, basically there's two, three things that influence how infectious the disease is. Um, one of them is basically like, again, like what the probability is if you come into contact with a single infected person, what's the likelihood you're going to get the illness? The second thing is how many people you come into contact with. And if you're in a dense place like New York City where everyone's on the subway, uh, for example, you're just going to come into contact with a lot more people. Um, that's why we're going to, you know, you're going to expect that the population density map is going to look exactly like the heat map for coronavirus with very few exceptions. So, I mean, again, I'm, I'm kind of extrapolating here. Does that mean it's less worse if Starbucks is open in Idaho than in New York? I mean, yeah, it is. So it's less worse, <laughs> I think. Um, the issue is like, you know, this is on an average population level. If there's an infected person in Idaho and Starbucks, you know, then it's not worse. <laughs> so Right. I know. I agreed. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. You know, c coming from the oncology space, obviously – 
the general sentiment is that this is just the elderly, but we also talk about the the compromised. And there are plenty of people that are under 40 that are compromised and at risk for this who may already be in active treatment for cancer. And I'm hearing, again, philosophical conversation. They're actually shutting down trials. They're actually putting different uh, bio tests to rest temporarily out there. So do you consider within the realm of epidemiology, the, uh, an ethics conversation? So I think um, uh, in terms of, there's a lot of work done by a lot of epidemiologists on, you know, what, whether or not the response, uh, for example, to uh, the COVID-19 crisis is going to be a cause of many other adverse health outcomes. And I think that there's a lot of people who um, are interested in both the economic aspects of this and in maybe the task shifting for hospital aspects aspects of this. These are two things that we're going to see. Uh, we're essentially going to see going forward, um, you know, whether or not there's going to be an adverse health outcome for individuals who have delayed treatment, for example, because a hospital in a major urban area has uh, kind of shifted a lot of their resources towards containing this disease. Um, you know, there, there is a risk of that, of course. So I was listening to, I mean, there are a myriad of shows to listen to. Some of them are very, very good. Sanjay Gupta has been someone I've always respected, and he's very on the mark with this. He's working overtime on this. And he was discussing the issue of lives versus livelihoods. And I think that's where you were touching on where do we draw the line? How do you compromise on a known mortality ratio against you know these other things that are just going to be really disaffecting society with long-term potential. Yeah, that's totally above my pay grade to make that ah. I think on that. So, um, but I think that's an important conversation to be having um, is, um, you know, the, the, the fear. And I think the real worry of this type of outbreak is that um, if we do nothing, it's definitely going to be really bad. Um, so there's a lot of estimates out there that are talking about, you know, if we did nothing, 2 million deaths uh, in the United States. Um, so that's kind of, you know, a lot to to um, digest. Um, what that doesn't answer is, you know, how much something should we do uh, to weigh, you know, to balance out uh, adverse consequences, you know, of that something that we do. So in oncology, a lot of doctors use the word elegant to describe tumors. And I know it's a medical term, and it's kind of weird to think that your cancer is elegant. Do you see this as something elegant and interesting and worthy of understanding and gives you a sense of really high-level insight into how diseases spread and the unique end of one situations, the social determinants as to what are causing these things? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of angles to kind of how diseases move in general that are very interesting. One is just to think about, you know, disease progression or disease spread, uh, let me clarify, from the perspective of the virus. Like, you know, if you, you know, not to pretend a virus has sentient thought, but the only thing a virus wants to do is replicate and make more of itself. And it needs kind of some host in order to do it. Um, viruses over time really tend to um, evolve to make it easier for them to replicate and pass on to the host. So really what will, you know, most viruses in the world um, that stay around a human population tend to move towards a situation of more infectious but less severe um, in order to kind of meet that. And I think that that's kind of an elegant thing to think about is the virus is constantly trying to change, you know, through natural selection, trying to change its um, 
you know, its a likelihood of being able to make more copies of itself. Um, and so I think that's interesting. It's also somewhat hopeful that most viruses that end up staying endemic in a population tend to be those that have uh, become, you know, somewhat less uh, severe in terms of morbidity and mortality uh, over time, at least in terms of short-term morbidity and mortality. Um, I think in terms of understanding like why certain populations, um, you know, who's going to be most affected, let's say, by an illness. There's a whole field of epidemiology that focuses on, focuses on, you know, social and structural determinants. And I would be hard pressed to think that, um, you know, inevitably um, this uh, type of illness, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure it's going to follow the similar patterns to everything else. Like poor people are going to be more disaffected by this for reasons that have nothing to do with biology. Back with our guest after the break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. And so, broadly speaking, thinking about people who are listening to this podcast and thinking about what they can do in order to protect themselves, in order to protect the rest of the herd, and so on, decision-making, thinking about the mechanics of how transmission takes place. I know that one conversation that's happening in my family is, should we somehow up and escape this epicenter of the pandemic? Should we accept the offer on the part of relatives to come live with them in Maryland? Should we move as we're supposed to do at the end of this month? All of these actions, you know, it kind of reminds me of, you know, as an individual tries to think about the role they're going to play in all of this and what their behavior can do to have a positive or negative impact. It reminds me of a bumper sticker I once saw that said, you're not stuck in traffic, you are traffic. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. so so as as I think about how to respond to this as an individual, what are what are some of the the ways of thinking that that, that you recommend? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of uh, the response to an individual, um, an important thing from like a public health perspective to think about is right now, just assume that you have this. You assume that you're an asymptomatic case. Um, what are the things in which um, you know? What would you change in your daily routine? Um, if you assume that you're sick and you're contagious with, with something that if it was passed on to somebody um, who is at a higher risk uh, than you are, um, how could you prevent that? And so I think that's kind of uh, the best kind of framing device I have at an individual level for really what we're talking about. 
for the majority of individuals, um, if you are, if you get this illness, it's going to be, you're going to be sick, uh, but you're going to recover. And it's going to be something that ranges from a cold, just like something like the worst flu you've ever had. Um, you know, depending on a whole lot of things, um, kind of how much virus you originally were inhaled, uh, you know, got is number one of them in terms of, you know, should you be moving out or anything or fleeing a city? You know, I think ask yourself like what, like who are you trying to protect in order to do that? Um, and is kind of the decision to uh, move going to introduce an illness uh, in an area that would otherwise not have it? And I think, you know, for, from the purpose of, you know, like um, people are living in urban settings, um, you have to make a decision um, but if you're going to be making the decision based completely on individual risk assessment, um, you know, quarantining in your house and limiting your interactions uh, as much as possible and being uh, very cognizant about washing your hands, you know, often um, when you leave the house and even while you're in the house um, and limiting your social interactions, you know, staying, you know, two meters away. That's kind of the sneeze zone um, in the times that you do it. Um, that's going to be sufficient to reduce the transmission. And thinking about those mechanics, just to talk about that a little bit, I think that there are, and this might be an opportunity for you to do a little bit of myth busting. Okay. Uh, there's, there's, first of all, feel free to talk about any myths that, that you feel you, you are, are being exchanged in the media, perhaps virus-like, that need to be dispelled. Uh, but more specifically, when we think about transmission, you know, can it be passed through the air? Is it purely a matter of uh, touching solid surfaces and and then touching your face? What are, how, how exactly does it, does it happen on, a, on an individual microscopic level? Yeah. So the vast majority of transmission occurs um, via direct person-to-person -person transmission, uh, where some person sneezes or coughs or talks and uh, expels uh, air uh, water droplets um, that have virus attached to it. And then it gets in your mouth or your eyes or your nose or some other mucous membrane. The vast majority of uh, all respiratory uh, illnesses, uh, you know, this is how people get sick. If you're sick, chances are you got it because you had a close contact with an individual. Um, now, it is possible uh, that you can get it from contaminated surfaces. Um, again, the way in which you would get that is if somebody who's infected coughs or sneezes or you know breathes onto a surface, um, and then you touch it before it's cleaned, and then you put get your hands in your mouth or your eyes or whatever uh, before you wash your hands, you know, with soap for thirty seconds. Um, there is this whole thing uh, discussion about well, you know, should I be you know washing my cardboard boxes or should I be um, you know you know freaking out about takeout delivery or something like that. Um, it's not to say that it is impossible to get in it, to get a virus um, from these things. I just think that people would be uh, very, uh, it would be a good thing for people to understand how much more possible it is to get an illness just from hanging out with somebody who is sick um, or from touching things uh, from somebody who is recently touching something uh, who is sick. That's how you're going to get this, um, even though you could get it theoretically through some other mechanism. The information I've been having trouble really understanding or finding anywhere is how long this virus lives on surfaces, varying different surfaces out there where you have to literally Purell your steering wheel and your shopping cart and the mail. Do you have information on that? Yeah, so there's this study, I think, this is where everyone's quoting the study in, in the New England Journal of Medicine from 
not sure exactly when it is, but in the last week or so, they kind of basically had this lab experiment where they kind of sprinkled a bunch of virus on a bunch of things. And then they just measured how how long it took for them not to be able to, de- to detect the virus. Um, and so they found that if they just had it in the air, that's what an aerosol is, it's just little droplets that hang out in the air, um, half of the virus is gone within an hour, which means that 75% of the virus would be gone within two hours, let's say. Um, so this is, you know, it's not going to stay very long uh, in the air, um, at least according to this experiment. Um, they, they did find that on cardboard, for example, half of the virus that they had was still uh, viable after about three hours. Um, but that means that, you know, 75% of the virus would be um, gone after um, about, you know, five or six hours. Um, and so, you know, I think that what... Um, uh, and for stainless steel, I think it was about six hours for half of the virus to be gone. Plastic, I think it was about seven hours for half of the virus to be gone. So that means that it is possible that the virus is going to live on this type of surface um, for a certain amount of time. But again, dose really matters. So the amount of virus or the concentration of virus um, that's on something um, is going to have an impact on your likelihood of uh, getting sick from it or your likelihood of even getting um, any kind of illness from it. And so just because that there's like one virus on you know, some plastic bag doesn't necessarily mean that your risk is strong of getting, um, of getting, um, you know, getting infected with this. Um, the minimally viable virus. Yeah, so I don't know. So um, yeah, I think it's, the idea is, you know, wash your hands um, after you touch stuff and quit touching your face. Um, do that a lot, you're gonna be okay. I mean, is that really, is it as simple as that the virus can only enter your body through the nose and mouth or other parts of your your skin? It's basically your nose, your mouth, your eyes, your ears. Um, That's pretty much where you're going to get this from. It also appears that this particular illness um, affects your respiratory uh, system. Um, So the primary way in which you're going to get sick is from the nose or the mouth. Uh, Another valuable exercise would be, in your opinion, and perhaps conversationally, what cities and states are doing, are are the most and the least effective when it comes to the measures that they are taking in order to respond to this challenge? Uh, And then perhaps I'd be interested in your thoughts uh, uh, when it comes to national governments across the world. Um, Let me start with the national governments because that's easiest. Um, uh, the governments that have done the best job are the governments that um, had instituted testing um, on a very large scale very, very quickly. I think Hong Kong and I think South Korea. Um, uh, it's not surprising that um, these are the uh, these are some of the places that have been able to at least so far um, do a decent job of containing uh, the outbreak or the epidemic. What they did was they identified, they, they did a very good job of casting a wide net in terms of testing um, so that they were able to isolate cases before there became substantial community transmission. This is the key thing if you're trying to prevent an epidemic before it really happens, is you identify the people who are ill and you kind of build a wall around them so they don't infect other people. So this is what um, South Korea did a great job of doing. I would say other countries just didn't do that. In you know, we're in the United States. In this case, um, for uh, whatever reason, um, there was not a testing, a, a large-scale surveillance testing program in place for uh, COVID. Despite the fact that we knew um, as soon as there was an estimate of a decent number of infections in in China, um, we knew that it was hap- it was coming to our country because you know 
uh, because of international travel. And so we knew it was coming. We knew that uh, it would be contagious when it was uh, introduced here. Um, there was a way in which, uh, you know, screening could have been set up very quickly at airports and it wasn't done. Um, so I think from a national level, um, a lot of the different differences in the response, um, you know, once you are unable to isolate uh, the illness among a really a, an identifiable, identifiable small number in the population, it becomes increasingly hard to figure out how to manage uh, uh, the spread of illness once it once there's community transmission. It's kind of like trying to stop the common cold at this point. It's really difficult to do it because um, a lot of people are, um, you know, are infectious before they are feeling symptoms that are going to make them stop going to work. Um, in terms of the information that's being collected, um, what's going to help versus what's not going to help. Uh, in New York, for example, uh, there is a recent decision to kind of really focus on identifying hospitalizations as kind of the key metric in terms of what response is needed. And the decision for that was really based on a clinical perspective as they wanted to be able to prepare hospitals to meet the needs of this kind of surge of patients who are going to need respirators. Um, these are the severe cases that maybe 10% uh, or so of, the, of everybody who you know, is, has been identified that might need a visit to the ICU to get oxygen so that um, they can kind of uh, have a better prognosis for staving off and uh, cure, clearing this illness. Um, so uh, their metric, the metric in New York is now number of hospitalizations. And what we need to look for is, is the number of hospitalizations, is the rate of increase from one day to the next slowing over time. And that's kind of what the governor, perhaps a little bit prematurely, talked about, I think, two days ago. Um, I'm not going to get into a, a discussion about which states I think are doing better than others, just because I think that a place like New York um, is really different than a place like, I don't know, Idaho, for example, or even Ohio, just in terms of um, the prevalence or the population density of individuals. A lot of the mechanisms in place right now um, are really necessary for high dense areas. And so I think New York is doing a good job in that regard. I have another quick question going back to this bell curve, which I'm obsessed with now. And de Blasio says something really interesting about how he's not going after the teenagers. And when asked why, he's like, because I have one and you can't change their minds. So we start to look at, again, this idea of what is the minimal percentage of society that needs to actually do what is necessary with hygiene and social distancing to make sure that the curve is flattened even a little bit. Yeah. And so I think, you, I mean, it's important to think about, um, you know, everything counts. Every little bit matters um, in the sense that if you don't have universal compliance, it doesn't mean that the efforts are worthwhile or are not worthwhile. You know, when uh, public health people actually move from doing experiments to kind of more applied, you know, implementation, kind of build in the assumption that, you know, not everyone's going to follow the rules because no one's ever followed every rule ever. Um, so really, the idea is if we could reduce the um, the likelihood of uh, transmission uh, for every one, uh, you know, between an infected and susceptible person by about 50 percent. So essentially, if, you know, everyone washes their hands a little bit better or half the people wash their hands a lot better, that would be you know sufficient to do that plus reducing the average number of people that we come into contact with by about 50%, um, that would be enough to drastically flatten the curve. And so it's not like an all or nothing. Every bit counts. It's kind of a gradient. Everything that you can do to reduce the per contact 
transmission or um, or the number of contacts is going to flatten the curve. And one final question as we wrap up, and that has to do, as we reach the end of our episode, the question has to do with the end of this experience. When does this end? When should these measures end? I know that's an unfair question to pose to any one person, but from your perspective, what does the end look like and when do you think it'll happen? Yeah, so I, I mean, this is everyone wants to know this question and nobody knows the answer to it. I think there's kind of two scenarios. Uh, one is our kind of our flattening the curve type of things where we're trying to reduce the total number of infections. Let's say that that fails. Um, we just don't do a good job of it. People are still getting infected. Uh, the real hope there is that, um, uh, and the expectation really, at least in you know among the people who uh, study this, um, the expectation is that if you recover from this, you should have some form of immunity. Um, that form of immunity um, really protects everybody in the population. This is the thing, if you've read about the concept of herd immunity, this is what it's referring to. Um, if, um, if, um, if we can basically create a population in which about 60% of the people are immune to this, um, then it's going to be really hard for the epidemic to sustain itself. Um, so one way to do that is uh, by just kind of letting this run its course, um, letting the sick people recover, um, hopefully, um, you know, uh, quarantining those who are, um, uh, hopefully preventing those people who are at risk for really bad complications from being the ones who are infected, and then kind of letting everyone else kind of take it for the team. That's kind of one way in which this could, um, this could end. The consequence of that is you would have a really high spike and you'd overwhelm your health, your healthcare systems. This is what we're trying to prevent. Not we, but this is what New York State is trying to prevent uh, through the efforts of you know social isolation, quarantining, no groups of larger than two or whatever it is now. Is they're trying to prevent the situation in which we have mass infections, ninety percent of people recover and develop immunity, but those ten percent of the people are too many for our healthcare system to um, to care for adequately. So the other way that this is going to work is say that we have, um, we're able to flatten this curve. Um, people are going to start feeling pretty good when the number of infections per day, you know, decreases, you know, for several days in a row. And then there's going to be kind of um, a bartering, like a politics about, well, is this, are we contained enough that we can, you know, stop, you know, stop all of these things that are, you know, unemploying thousands and millions of people? Uh, when can we turn the economy back on? You would expect that with every relaxation, there might be a small increase or an increase in the number of cases. We would then expect, you know, health uh, systems and governments to try to reintroduce these type of quarantining measures to have a cover on it. So kind of the two ways, the two ways it might end are either people get, you know, herd immunity and we have a huge peak um, and it's really bad, but then it's kind of over for this illness until it mutates at least. Or we're going to have kind of this gradual, more gradual peak a declining. And then when we get lazy, um, we're going to have a peak again, but smaller than the first, you know, clamp that down and kind of have this peaking and peaking until we reach some sort of endemic state where there's just kind of a little bit of this in the population until a vaccine is developed. I have no idea which one's going to happen. A fascinating portrait of the possible outcomes and not one that I think I've heard before. So thank you very much for answering that very challenging to answer question. <laughs> Well, Matthew Lamb, we want to thank you very much for appearing on our show today. Oh, great. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. It's like an alien invasion. Eight billion people are rallying together to do something for the first time in Earth's history. <laughs> Maybe we can check in with you again in another month or so. Sure. Yeah. Thank you very much, Matt. Okay. Thank you. Thank you all. 
That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.